listening to the Infinity Festival Hollywood Podcast. I'm John Gaunt. The Infinity Festival Hollywood Podcast features top creators and technologists as they explore how to push storytelling to the next level. Now, these sessions from the 2021 Infinity Festival Hollywood are presented by Z by HP, NVIDIA, XLA, and co-presented by Qualcomm. The next edition of the Infinity Festival Hollywood will take place November 2nd through November 5th, 2022 in Hollywood's Vinyl District. Visit www.infinityfestival.com to learn more about this year's event. This show helps listeners get up and running with virtual production fast. Madeline Warren and Dan Leonard from Chapman University's Dodge College of Film and Media Arts interview Catherine Brillhart, a virtual production supervisor with credits from Netflix and Warner Brothers, along with Megan Donnelly, a cinematographer and camera operator. You'll come away with a better understanding plus practical tips for how virtual production changes the way creators visualize and execute projects of all sizes. Hey everyone, thanks for joining us. We have a great panel right now that I'm really excited about. It's all about getting up and running in virtual production, and there's no one I can think of more than the lovely moderator, Madeline Warren, who is a, the perfect guide to walk us through this um, along with her esteemed panel. So Madeline, take it away. Hello, thank you for being here. It's uh, great to be back at the Infinity Festival in person, um, in clothing, not in pajamas, and so on. I'm sure a lot of people have said that already. Um, so this morning, we're going to talk about another side of virtual production. Um, you've probably been hearing about the high-end version. Um, you've probably watched The Mandalorian and wished there was some way you could get into that world. And we're going to talk about how we've all been involved in getting into that world at a much lower price point. Um, and finding our how to find your way into it. So my panel, my panelists are, are Megan Donnelly from Abel Cine, who has been very involved in helping us at Chapman University get started, and the wonderful Catherine Brillhart, um, <laughs> um, virtual production supervisor, cinematographer et cetera, et cetera. Um, and Dan Leonard, who is the Associate Dean and Chief Technology Officer of Chapman University, Dodge College of Film and Media Arts, and has personally supervised our virtual productions. <laughs> so here we go. Um, could And just for a look at what's going on in virtual production, um, Actually, yeah, we brought a, a couple of clips. Mm -hmm. and, uh, Michael Gates from Lenovo sent his oh. apologies. He was going to be part of this, but had a, a business thing come up uh, with virtual production that he needed to take care of. But he sent along this clip, so we'll go ahead and roll the first clip uh, and uh, tell us a little bit what production is. WPP is one of the largest production companies in the world. We probably go on 1,500 shoots a year and create over 100,000 pieces of content. Really kicking off a year ago with the, the start of the COVID pandemic, we've been thinking a lot at WPP about how do we make work going into the future. And very much along these lines of constraint-based innovation, the, the fact that we couldn't work the way that we normally used to work 
has really made us think very creatively about how do we innovate production going forward. 64% of our top 50 clients have committed to setting science-based carbon reduction targets. That means that they are thinking about the impact that they have on climate change. To reduce the emissions associated with production, we are exploring technology-based solutions. And so we've been innovating a process internally to shoot the sets using drones, then creating virtual meshes of those sets, and then inserting products and actors into those environments. You can shoot the scenes and the sets separately from the products, from the talent. And by deconstructing this entire process, you cut down substantially on the environmental impact of the work that you're making. You don't have to travel, people can work remotely, and people can work in a collaborative but distributed way. We are looking to go net zero across our entire value chain by 2030. Okay, we can pause there. And thank you, Michael Gates, for sending us that that overview of what's going on in virtual production and all the amazing ways it's being used for really for environment-friendly environment um, filmmaking. And now, what is virtual production? Uh, Catherine, <laughs> would you like to talk about that one? Sure, I'll start it off. So I guess, uh, you know, the, the most succinct way to talk about virtual production is the blending of the physical and digital worlds, specifically bringing real-time components into uh, key aspects of filmmaking. So motion capture is an, an example of that. Um, using Unreal Engine to run L LED volumes and stages is another example of that. Um, I don't know, Megan, Dan, do you want to add? Yeah, I mean, to me, it's really a, a unique technology that allows you to build anything that exists or doesn't exist and bring it into reality. Um, and the limit is your imagination. Uh, that's what we like to say. But then there are still the physical limitations of the space of what you can imagine and build and then actually build in a realistic way or in a stylistic way within the Unreal Engine. Um, it's a, a tremendous boon for filmmakers. One last thing I was going to just add is it also allows or forces you to make decisions earlier in production that we tend to save for later in post-production. So there's a lot of creative collaboration that has to happen in the pre-production. And we'll talk a little bit about that as well. Yeah, it's, it is great for fostering collaboration, fostering it much earlier on, um, moving things that used to be in post up into pre-production where you have more time to plan them. Um, so let me ask my fellow panelists, how did you personally get into virtual production or get interested in exploring virtual production? I think I am starting because I'm sitting right next to Matt, lovely Madeline. Um, so I'm actually a cinematographer as well. And I also work with Able Cine as an educator. So working alongside them, I've constantly been learning technology and bringing it back into my work and vice versa. And in the last two years, we've really dove in as a company to being consultants for virtual production and 
primarily for higher education like Chapman. So we conveniently were all working from home and had some extra time to learn a lot of different avenues with virtual production. And we already had vendors that we were working with in the broadcast space for LED walls. So I really had to get my feet wet uh, through Able Cine and the education resources that they have and started teaching classes on virtual production. And one of the best ways to learn something is to teach it because you have to learn it first so you can repeat it. So I started teaching a virtual production 101 course for higher education and it kind of evolved from there and moving into um, consulting with schools and clients on what's needed to get started from a budget standpoint or all the way up to a, a large budget as well. Yes, and um, can we run the next clip, uh, which... <laughs> yeah, we have, a, have a sort of pause. So we we actually worked with Able Cine to get started uh, by building an LED wall. So we have a, a time lapse of that, and then we'll also run into the next clip, which shows some of the student productions that have been done on it. Okay, we can go ahead and pause there. Uh, so uh, the first clip was uh, actually Able Cinetech building the wall uh, that we started to do virtual production at Chapman University. Uh, and you know, this came upon us very fast. Uh, we said, we'd like to get into virtual production. We had a little bit of money. And we, we called Able Cinetech. And within the space of uh, two to three months, we had negotiated the deal and actually put the wall up. So it can, you can get in very fast. Um, you know, uh, you need some expertise. And for us, this is a, is a starter wall. You can see it's like 16 feet by nine feet. Uh, but the next clips you saw are, are things that were shot on that wall. So even at that smaller size, we sort of viewed it as a teaching wall. Our students are so enterprising that they have figured out the best way to utilize this to sort of put the production design in front of the wall, which is critical uh, to hide some of the limitations uh, and then create their sort of worlds in Unreal. I just also mentioned that many of those students are here at the Infinity Film Fest over in the student uh, section. Um, Austina Wang from uh, Ceratosaurus and maybe some of our team and some of the team from Stratosphere are here as well. Uh, so uh, please do stop by. They're, they're fantastic uh, and they'll be very happy to talk to you about the, how they put their projects together. Yeah. And um, Megan, do you want to add any more about, um, you know, what, how you designed the space, what the limitations were? Because we didn't Although we have a couple of large sound stages at Dodge, where you know Chapman is, we're, we're very lucky in that regard. Um, but the space that our wall is in is not a huge space. It's it's actually a rather small stage. So, and we were we were kind of worried about whether we'd ever whether we'd actually be able to do this or not. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things I always like to say, too, about Chapman is they were ready to dive in. A lot of other clients that we've spoken with, they want to do the classes first. They want to kind of learn as we go and maybe build a wall later on. One thing I, I feel is you guys really knew that this was a technology that was worth investing in, and it was just figuring out a how. And so 
we had a couple of consultation phone calls where, you know, learning what was their goal, what was their objective, and really it was getting the technology in the hands of the students. And then looking at the space that they did have, so looking at a blueprint of that and what's the logical size of a, a wall that we could get while still thinking about the ceiling and a grid and lights. And, <laughs> and fire lanes. Exactly, and fire <laughs> lanes. And then also the distance we would need to be from the wall, uh, similar to to green screen in a way, but um, it depends on the pixel pitch of the LED panels that you have. So also having to make sure that there was the depth that could be created to make it realistic. And so, you know, we landed on a 16 by nine or so wall and, and kind of putting that forward to them and saying, we think this is the right size to go with as a great starting point and investment in the technology. Right. Um, so, what so that led to kind of another question of what types of projects lend themselves to a, a rather small wall and and also what types of projects lend themselves to virtual production in general because you know unless you're filming in the mandalorian's volume um you're definitely going to be considering well, what would work in, in the space that is available to me and with the technology that is available to me? Um, I, I'm gonna turn this over to Catherine because she's been, she's has a lot of experience in this area, but I would also add that um, for anybody who's interested in exploring more what it's like to get in at the very, very low end, maybe even before you have a wall, but just have a green screen, um, Matt Workman's YouTube videos are an invaluable source of information. And, you know, it was during the pandemic. I think we all spent a lot of time watching them before we even met Megan. <laughs> so, Catherine, um, would you like to talk about the creative versus the technical aspects of um, what lends itself to sure. virtual um, production? Yeah, you know, it's the Wild West. <laughs> and there's some things that we know right now, you know, that tend to work pretty well, like space, um, fin like, you know, fantasy worlds. Um, and that's still very general because as you start kind of like zooming into like, well, what are you shooting in those worlds? What textures, what production, what physical production design elements are you integrating with the screen? If we're really just talking about virtual production as far as LED volumes goes. Um, uh, you know, I'll say this, you could probably figure out a way to shoot just about anything, but you're gonna have to, uh, like experiment with those materials, have time with the screen and pieces of that set design already pre-made um, and give yourself a, a, like a planned discovery period in advance. So the, some of the footage that I brought is, you know, for the past couple of years, everyone's been saying, don't do a wheat field, don't do grass. It's, you can't do it. And the thing is you can, um, but some shots are going to be more expensive and more complex than others. And I will safely say that even in my own test, shots that are wider where you see people's feet and you see where the ground connects with the screen, they don't necessarily hold up, you know, the way that, you know, I would want. Um, and we can go through the reasons, you know, after. But um, some of it has to do with 
what does final pixel mean on the wall and what quality level can you get out of those that that imagery and then also there's a lighting integration uh, part of the process um, there's just actually matching pers perspective and scale and um, you know I think also um, having talent that sort of sells it's a talent and cinematography that sort of sells all of it as like the final shot. So very subjective, but, um, I say, try anything and everything and just blow us away with what you discover. Yeah. If we could go ahead and queue up the, the last clip, uh, that Catherine brought, uh, maybe you can sort of talk about how some of those principles applied to your work. Oh yeah, sure. <laughs> so this is just, test footage. This is all shot on an LED wall that was 12 feet by 30 feet with a 1.9 millimeter pixel pitch. Uh, I love that shot because there's actually just equipment. We just put a light in front of the wall to get the hard light and use depth of field to hide the stand. Um, this was an example I thought that kind of worked integrating the ground plane with the LED wall, but I think it's because of the lighting and the overcast, the nature of the overcast, how we composed the uh, foreground, midground, and background. Um, I thought the grass sold well in these crazy windy shots because we weren't focused on their feet. And as soon as you go to these wide shots, you can see that these are going to be visual effects shots in post because you can see like, uh, what do you call it? Like plant plastic containers and things. But as a scene, it kind of works. And this was really fun. This was the Days of Heaven direct reference. Um, uh, for their fire scene. And I was inspired by the director's cut and the filmmakers talking about how they had to do weeks of night shooting to get this specific, uh, you know, framing and this scene. And there were no chemicals involved in this. We probably shot this the fastest in about 20 minutes. So, um, and the, and the choice here that I wanted to point out that I think is important artistically is I did my own fire test with VAD. It looked like a video game. You know, if I had a million dollars and could afford a Houdini artist that can make some interesting particles that I could design, that would have been really cool. But that footage was from Pond5. It was a 4K image and it worked great. So what's this? What's the story of Wheatfield? I, I mean, what is it about? That, well, I think the final piece, once it's cut together, is going to be about Cam like the woman Camille in the piece. And it's sort of about this budding relationship between the man and the woman. Yeah, it's, it looks beautiful. Um, okay, um, Dan, do you want to speak any more about the the clips from the student films? Yeah, I, I mean, I think um, I sort of wanted to pick up a little bit on what Catherine was saying about um, <laughs> you're kind of like on a train. The, the The train is actually moving as you're trying to test things and figure it out. I know that's one of the things that our students experienced which, you know, if you want to get started, one of the, the things that you can do immediately that is free is to download Unreal Engine and start learning it. What you quickly learn is that Unreal was a game engine, or is a game engine, but has added this functionality of virtual production on top of that. Um, and then it got really popular really fast, and they're still adding it as fast as they can. So um, oftentimes one of the things <laughs> that we found out is 
well, some of the things that they that are putting in for virtual production that will make things easier break other things within the engine. And so, you know, what version you're on of the engine or what you've built your environment, if you if you try to keep up with the updates, you might have some problems when you go to actually film. I know that was a snag that one of our, our students ran into uh, on the way. Uh, but that being said, they, they continue to improve it. There's all sorts of things that you can do. You can start with the engine and uh, from Amazon buy a hundred dollar green screen with lights. Um, everyone gets really entranced by the LED wall, uh, even our small wall. <laughs> People are super excited and they, want, they feel like everything needs to be done on it. But really you need to plan each shot and decide what is appropriate for the wall, what would be better with green screen, uh, what you need to do practically in front to cheat and make sure like, <laughs> what are you gonna do with the feet? Uh, how, how big are, can you do those sort of shots? And so that takes a lot of pre-production and in some experimentation. Um, it's also the, the lighting is very important, um, particularly when things get really well lit in Unreal, they tend to look more game engine-y, so it tends to, seems to work a little bit better with darker environments, I think, and so it's kind of the same thing that we've been doing in filmmaking since <laughs> forever, is what gets lost in the shadows, exactly. use the shadows to your benefit. Yeah, do you want to uh, also add on to that about, you know, the idea about um, when you're shooting on location, shooting a plate that you can then put on the wall to do, you can explain it better than I. <laughs> yeah, so there, there are so many different ways that it can be used. Uh, in some ways, it's also used as a pre-visualization tool. So what is it that you're gonna shoot? You can, you can set up cameras, uh, virtual cameras and approximate lenses and sort of get an idea of what you wanna shoot beforehand. Uh, also for, for our particular stage, a great use is to, if you've gone and rented a location, you spent $10,000 on that location, you really only had one day there, if you're there and you shoot some plates from, you know, you've already got the camera set up, run some extra film. If you need to go back and get a close up or a medium shot of a line, you can go and fake that without spending $10,000 to get back into that environment. So there's a lot of practical sort of uses for it. If you think about it, an LED wall is really the same as an older technology, which is rear screen projection. And so, you know, a lot of folks think like, okay, everything is just done on the wall. It's really so important <laughs> what production design you put on it. And I'd also like to point out that no volume is perfect. Even the Mandalorians, if you look, they have different volumes and they reconfigure them uh, based on the shots. So some have been elevated because they're doing spaceship shots and they have a whole big spaceship that they've built in front of it. And then others are you know, put in different ways or different sections of the tiles are put behind almost like green screen for certain sections. So. It's important to see all of these different aspects of virtual production as workflows and tools in your toolkit. You know what I mean? You don't, you can, you know, use one thing for the whole project if you want, but I think the, the, you know, as an artist, it's just kind of looking at these tools for what they are and ex like taking, taking them to their breaking point and kind of understanding what you can do with them because the more you can kind of combine them together or combine them with traditional things that you've learned or learn how to harness them to do what you want to get your creative vision out there. I think that's, you know, the coolest thing about this technology. And I think um, one of the lead-ins to it that sort of started happening earlier in our industry than the LED walls themselves was just real-time motion capture. And that combination with a game engine, 
is really incredible because I would say since 2000, between 2000 and 2021, the difference in filmmaking is like, you know, I might've had to just consecutively edit a performance on a timeline. And now in a game engine, I can record my performance. I could, if I was a director that was like, this is all about performance, this piece that I'm making, this animated film that I'm making, let's say, I could go out and focus on that and record the best performance. I could edit that performance and I could nail it. And then if that's how my brain worked, I could build a world around it. Mm. I could build cameras around it. I could edit that. Then I could change the cameras on my editing timeline. That's crazy, <laughs> but it's not crazy. That's just how things are now. And so I'm excited for this new square one, like these new ways of, of thinking. And that's, those are the things that, how people use the tools and, and figure out. Because so, the thing is, there's all this, oh, you know, get up and running fast and whatever. But the thing is, the further you get in your career as an artist, that pressure never goes away. It actually just increases. You have to always be resourceful and know, be doing tests and, and figure out how you're gonna get your vision because there's always gonna be the money issue. There's always gonna be a team that you're working with that for different political reasons wants to use a different workflow or steer the project in another direction. So the more of a handle you have on the why and the how, or how you're constructing what you're making and how you're approaching your craft, the more control you're gonna have over that creative story and um you know like it just brings me back to story like mike kind of came up through uh, i'm a cinematographer and i discovered visual effects and it changed my life because i was like this <laughs> this is the other half of making an image you know there's what i shoot and then there's this whole other process that goes into making it what it actually is and when you start talking to people that you know didn't have digital cinematography necessarily or like these great directors that were backed into their own corners or had to use their own interesting te techniques. Like, I just wanna point out one that inspires me, which is like stop motion animation. And learning that like in the abyss that James Cameron used that specific technique in combination with projection to get the robot, like that submarine scene where she's kind of like going down the water in the submarine. He basically recorded her performance gutted a Nikon camera, turned it into a projector, projected her performance onto the glass of that submarine and had a team of stop motion animators animate that submarine in the water. And so that scene that you see that looks like a camera shot it, it did, but there were lots of pieces that went into that. And so when I think of virtual production, my mind goes crazy because I'm just thinking about all these other, like how all these little tiny pieces of it, not the whole kitchen sink, like what pieces of it can I use as a director to really get my vision across? Um, not only as a cinematographer, maybe as a director sometimes, because now I can hop on the engine for free and make a project and use wheels and a dolly for free. But um, yeah, I don't know. What are your thoughts on yeah, that? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, when I'm listening to you, I'm thinking about all the flexibility that, you know, we have to have as creatives. And I think that this technology 
even lends itself even more to that. Like you said about, um, you know, taking pieces of it into your art. It doesn't have to be the whole piece is shot on an LED wall. Uh, of course it can, you know, there's productions that do and it allows them to go to 10 different locations all across the world and their stage, uh, which they wouldn't have been able to afford otherwise. But at the same time, you know, taking your knowledge that you know from the craft you know, from history and using all these different elements, I think is a really good point of like the flexibility that you have to have. And it, the technology point kind of reminds me of, you know, we're at this time where we feel like virtual production is, is this Mandalorian level where it's really hard to get into. And then there's this, this actuality of it where you can learn so much online and you can use your iPhone and your iPad as your virtual camera. And it reminds me of the time when I was kind of just getting in the industry where digital cameras were coming out and now people could buy red cameras and DSLRs all over the world versus a very small amount of people that could afford to purchase 35 millimeter film cameras. So I think that that's one of the exciting things about it is it's this wide range of people and creatives and the way we look at the world that can access the technology and not to feel like it's only reserved for you know certain projects or, or budgets yeah. well and like you know I, I don't know if they're like visual effects professionals in the audience but um a really strong way to use an led wall right now even in crunch time sort of stressful protection scenarios is really for lighting reference or for like actual like lighting on your subjects for specific things like if part of your visual effects process on your set requires shooting performance or elements um, that you want to integrate later into a final visual effects shot, um, this it's this technology play. That's a strength that you can play to in that technology, especially if you have metallic um, costumes or set pieces. Um, you know, just it's, it's interesting. It's, it helps you integrate your. Yeah, I'd say the, the the big benefit of the Unreal technology in it is the real time feedback, even if you're going to do a post process. So oftentimes they may use a wall as a green screen or a portion of it as a green screen. So they've created the background. They know they're going to go and need to do some adjustments in post, but the actors are going to be able to see on set what's happening. In in our case, we also since we have a small. Um, stage and we had designed the music video that we saw the third clip uh, of uh, had been designed to be a desert world with sand and when we went to go get into the uh, stage so the stage manager was like you can't put sand in here we'll never get out it'll be like here for three years so that night uh, that that asset had to be remodeled to use rocks so that physical rocks could come in um, and so you can make those sort of changes instantly and see what they're going going to be so that's a, a big advantage of it but i think you're you know the technology <laughs> so a couple of things all of the education online is great but it's also like a couple of versions back so even unreal's own documentation of the engine you go and search something in and maybe something that's been changed just completely different in the so you need to have a little bit of a pioneering spirit and as always with filmmaking a troubleshooter mentality is there's more than one way to skin a cat yeah i think that um unreal has been very forthcoming about wanting to become more production friendly so in the last couple of um upgrades they're moving more in that direction and we're all waiting anxiously for um, 5.0, which will apparently make it easier to 
to use with production of animation, um, which we're already experimenting with. Um, but you know, they they just keep keep refining the tools. And as Dan mentioned, sometimes that means the old tools break, mm -hmm. but um, but it does keep keep getting better. Yeah, and the other, it's sort of like an unparalleled opportunity to get into this area. There's, I mean, when you go to look for expertise, there really aren't so many experts. Uh, they are the people who have done it and have figured out a way through it that can then put it up on YouTube or and then sort of uh, multiply that that knowledge exponentially. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, this is part of the reason why we wanted to have a wall and start working with it, um, even at a small size, because we're educating people who are going to be entering the industry next year and years and, and you know, every year after that. So um, what industry are they entering? You know, what skills do they need to get jobs in that industry? And um, it was made very clear to us by people that we'd been in contact with in the business. I, I come from the business myself and um, because we have a, a VR, we've had a VR and AR minor at Chapman for a few years now, we had a lot of contact with Epic and with other technology companies. Um, and it was very clear that, that they had a great need in the workforce for people to come into the business um, with some knowledge of virtual production. They didn't have to be an expert, but they had to be comfortable on a set and know what the jargon was that was go was incumbent upon a shoot using virtual technology. So, you know, that was what was behind our effort. And I think for independent filmmakers, for smaller production companies, you know, you want to have that knowledge as well. I, I did want to just get back to one thing that Dan said before about the... Um, a student spending $10,000 on a location for a day, that that's actually never happened at Chapman. <laughs> I, I'm a producing mentor, and I would say, no, <laughs> you cannot, your director cannot have that location. Find something else. But anyway, aside from that... Um, well, renting a stage can be expensive. Yes, yeah. yes. So, um, you know, we've touched on some th things about um, cinematography and interpreting a script for virtual production. Um, let's, in the 10 minutes that we have left, um, let's talk a little bit about um, which departments um, are critical for this or what, what skills, people in the industry with certain skills or people entering the industry or, you know, in college studying certain disciplines, um, who do we, who should, who in particular should be learning this? Um, I'll, just, I'll kick it off. I feel like I want to talk about it in like the different kinds of teams you could join, because I think if I were just jumping in, I'd be like, well, you know, what kinds of opportunities are there out there? So the way that virtual production is kind of hooking in would be like, um, you could go, and I'm just thinking of like, let's start with like volume, volume control for like LED walls, right? Um, you might have a VAD department 
like a, you know, a company that's specializing in VAD, which is like virtual art department and set construction and Unreal Engine. So somebody with like a modeling texturing background that can also blueprint, that can optimize assets, that's going to be a critical skill set in that role. If you're interested in like visualization and story and like really being like working with a director and DP, you know, uh, but still working in Unreal Engine and kind of running the camera for them during a session or like having a creative session with the director, then maybe previs artist and animation uh, is and storyboarding is kind of like more of the skill set that you have going into that with the knowledge of Unreal Engine and some basic some basics, you know, there. But uh, that would be that skill set. And then there's maybe the, the new virtual production department that's sort of forming in, in the industry right now, which is holding the stage ops team, right? So that's a team that has to have kind of a like a mirroring. Sometimes you would have like a camera ready component to that that has to have the same skill set as VAD so you can grab the content, optimize it like crazy, still creatively move things like, but have a director yelling at you or telling you what to do in a really short amount of time. So that's maybe a different personality type um, on set. Uh, and on set, they, that could go really granular. You know, you could have camera tracking in Unreal Specialist. You could have um, a coordinator who's data wrangling all of that and helping manage that pipeline. You might have um, a stage manager who has to be able to understand how to run that team and the engine because they've got to make sure they can troubleshoot and make sure their team's successful. Maybe there's a project, like a, a stage project or production manager who's just organizing the logistics of all of that. Um, that's kind of like the volume side, but then certainly with animation and uh, like motion capture becomes more of a focus. So that's kind of like a rough starting place. <laughs> yeah, I, I think the same thing. Some of it is what is it that you're intending to do? Is, a, is there an animated character? Is there not? Uh, to me, the big thing is that it's, it's almost like you're doubling the workload for your departments and cre increasing the sort of idea of communication. So production design not only needs to help with the physical set, but then also how are all the elements arranged uh, in the assets in the Unreal Engine and how do they meld together to create a cohesive whole shot by shot. Uh, cinematography uh, department needs to do the lighting on the stage, but also how is that matching uh, the lighting within Unreal uh, in the backgrounds. And of course, you need operators, and if they're visual effects, you need the visual effects team that also is coordinating between those as well. And then there's you know some some of the technical help that you need, which is who's actually operating Unreal. How many computers are you running? How many how many uh, um, volumes are you trying to drive? Uh, which is you know, determined by the complexity of your project. So there needs to be that technical help. And then there's the the the, the creative decisions that are involved in the technology of, well, I want the, the background to move as my camera moves, so am I using a MOSIS system to accomplish that, or a Vive, or an iPhone, you know, depending on your budget level. And so some of that is you know just getting into your project, planning it, and testing things out as best you can before you, you get to it get to it and being flexible with approach if one piece of the chain doesn't work right or you need to spend more time getting something right when you get there. From, from, a, like a, from a department standpoint, um, if you're a director in the audience, 
your buy-in to the process is going to affect the whole game mm -hmm. um, and how you structure the approval process for all the content that goes down the pipeline is going to be critical. So form a strong relationship with your virtual production supervisor and helping and your and your production designer, your DP, any of those key roles and work together to create an approval process because I think that's something that also sort of surprises people is how much invested time the director needs to spend mm -hmm. with each department signing off and getting all those department heads together early on yeah. for all of those processes. I, I agree. Spending. And agreeing on what the shot is because you know, it's sort of like with animation, you were just animating the frame. With Unreal, you're building a whole world. So do we need to render that whole world or we could do something in production design that's gonna obscure this portion uh, also, techni technically, do we, we don't need to render the whole world in in the uh, the highest detail, just the area that's going to be defined by the camera, which they call the frost room. So, you know, spending a lot of time modeling or or texturing stuff that you're never going to see is a waste of time and money and effort. Yeah. In the couple of minutes that we have left. Um you speak into the microphone. Oh, does anyone have any questions? Um, because we could obviously talk about this forever. Yes. In a virtual production, is the color grading process during post-production any different than in a normal production? Um, it definitely, I mean, just like any production, it starts at the very beginning of the process. But, um, you know, building out your color workflow, if it's an LED volume stage that we're talking about early on, is important, making sure that you are able to calibrate your camera sensor to the wall and have an understanding of you know what color is coming out of the wall, what your camera is capturing. Um, there is the part of the color workflow is making sure that you have a process for your vendors to provide you know their content correctly in the right format with you know what is defined that, that creative intent whatever that creative intent is. And then it's your responsibility to make sure that whatever that creative intent was before it got to the wall looks exactly the same and holds up. So there's that testing part of the process that goes with that. Um, and this goes deep. We could talk mm -hmm. about, you know, mired shift calculations. We could talk about doing it a different way, like a physically based approach to that. Um, but then once, like, a, Ideally, once you have successfully confirmed that you have the right creative intent on the wall and all your systems are calibrated, you should just be able to shoot it. Shoot it raw, hopefully. And then it should be, yeah. Some, yeah, some. if you're doing the composition in camera, that's kind of whatever gets recorded by the camera will be using you know traditional color workflow at the end to affect it as a whole. If you're doing something that's going to be composited, then those different pieces of the chain, you like you'd have a green screen that could be uh, color corrected differently from the background and whatnot. If you could do that as a post process, so it can vary by shot, even within the same production, that some things are going to be completely finished on the wall in Compton camera and other things are going to go through a post-production process and go through a different workflow. So important sort of to determine that in pre-production, you know, again, which shots are doing what. Yeah. Any, any other questions? Uh, nope. Um, okay. So um, as we wrap up, um, uh, let me just ask you um, if there was one thing you wish you had 
known going into this uh, <laughs> or something you wished you could have done differently what what would that what advice would you give everyone i'll go first i think for me it would be remembering like we're talking about here this this whole time is how there isn't one way to do things and i think that when you're learning something you can feel as though you're okay this is the workflow i have to do and if i can't do that part then it's not for me so even though i know those things about being open-minded sometimes still when you're learning a technology it can feel as though uh, you have to follow each each step of the way so i think my biggest advice is just remembering that more holistically like the creative vision and that this is a tool to add to tell your story or to be the DP or the writer for the story. Um, so just always remembering that it's that open-mindedness and um, troubleshooting, like Dan said. <laughs> Dan? Oh boy, well, I've been, I've, I just straight up agree with Megan. <laughs> yeah, for me, it would be just, you know, spending as much time as humanly possible in Unreal and seeing what the possibilities are because the, anything is possible, but it's also, there are limits to what a particular technology can do for you. And oftentimes it's just approached with, um, you know, anything can be done, you throw it up there and it doesn't quite look right and it takes a lot of time and refinement. Uh, and there aren't a lot of people who can do that. So oftentimes, particularly at the student level, um, getting folks that know how to use Unreal to a very deep degree that can actually make the vision that you had in your mind come out in reality rather than, you know, sort of like that, you know. Well, thank you all for being here and listening to us rant. Um, and thanks so much to our hosts at Infinity. Um, and on to the next, uh, on to the next panel. Thank you. This has been the Infinity Festival Hollywood Podcast, a production of the Infinity Festival Hollywood and the Augmented City. You can find us on all major podcasting platforms and our website, infinityfestival.com. That's one word, infinityfestival.com. And there you'll find a full schedule, speakers, and map of this year's festival. We want to thank our presenting sponsors, Z by HP, NVIDIA, XLA, and our co-presenter Qualcomm for their support of this audio series. I'm John Gaunt, inviting you to Hollywood's Vinyl District this November for the Infinity Festival Hollywood 2022. Thanks for listening.